In Philippians chapter 2, we are in an in-depth study of the book of Philippians called Authentic Joy. And in this section of the chapter, or the section of the book, he talks to the Philippians about shining as a light in the midst of a dark world. They have some unique things that are going on, and he talks about four things that they can do to make sure that they shine well. Jesus said to us that we are the light of the world. He said, you don't light a light to put it under a basket. A city that's set on a hill can't be hidden. We want to shine effectively for him. We want to evaluate these four things that he says to the Philippians and see if they apply to us and to see if we, can't, if we might not be able to reach out in a better way to those around us who need to know Christ. He also talks about the contrast between the world and the church and the light. The Bible tells us, it's interesting, in Daniel in the Old Testament and its equivalent revelation in the New Testament, both of them at the end of the book have something that sounds the same, talking about a polarization that takes place between Christians and the world, how radically different they are. It sounds a lot like today. In Daniel 12.10, it says this, Many shall be purified, made white, and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. At the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 22, 11, it says this, He who is unjust, let him still be unjust. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he who is holy, let him be holy still. I believe that we are marching quickly towards the last days. And I believe that these things that we hear here in contrast to the world really speak to us about us living our lives the way that we are supposed to so people see Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so we want to pick it up in Philippians chapter 2 in verse 12 where he tells them the first thing to do. Remember, there's four things that he's going to talk to the Philippians uh, to do about shining brightly for him. The first one is that they are to work out their own salvation. And this is generally a problem passage. So let's talk about it and we'll talk about how this applies to them shining as lights. In verse 12, it says, therefore, and remember, whenever there's a therefore, you want to find out what it's there for. So the first 12 verses or 11 verses of this chapter have been him telling us three things we're supposed to not do. Don't do anything from selfish ambition. Don't do anything from conceit and don't do anything out of personal interest or put, don't seek out your own interest only, but put other people's interests above your own. And then we have the great example of Jesus that became a man, that became a servant, that became a servant to the point of death on the cross. It was like down, down, down. He humbled himself so that God has highly exalted him. Therefore, verse 12, my beloved. So he's going to say some things that are a little bit hard for them to hear. He softens it up a little bit. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, as I said, this is a controversial verse because it, the section says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is a big that has been a hot button in the church for centuries. Is it God that is saving us or are we choosing and saving ourselves by calling out upon the name of God? The whole concept, is it monergyism? Is God working alone or is it synergyism where we're working together with God? 
like so many other things I find that it really and truly is a balance. That this verse quoted by someone who wants to say that we are, that we make choices in salvation and we are the only ones involved in it, that God makes provision and then leaves it up to us and they only quote the first part of this passage is a problem, right? If you were just to quote this, if you were making the point that God has provided salvation for you and now it's your choice and God has nothing else to do with it, you would quote this part of it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I've heard people do that. They just quote that part work, and they end there. But that's not all it says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. In other words, I think that this argument is not an and or is it you that is involved, that is responsible for your salvation? Or is it God that's responsible for your salvation? I think it's a both. I think God's doing his part and you're doing your part and we both have to do them. We do have to work out our own salvation because there are things that God reveals to us and shows us. We need to make a decision to follow after him and live for him wholeheartedly. And there are those who confess Christianity who are not making any effort at all into living their lives for Christ or surrendering themselves completely to Jesus. And so that part applies. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How are you going to shine as a light for Christ if you're not truly, really walking with him? So you want to make sure that you have a real relationship with him and there should be some fear and trembling to working out our own salvation. We're going to have to stand before God someday. But I'm so glad that the second part is here. For it is God who works in you both to will and do. So God works in us for our will and also so that we do certain things. So in other words, when we want to serve him more, when we want to follow him, when we want to get things right in our lives and begin doing the things that God calls us to do, it's because God has worked in us. It's because now we have the will to do those things because God's giving us the will to do them and he gives us the power to do them. We know we can't save ourselves anyway, right? You can't jump high enough to get saved. You can't do enough good works to be saved. God had to make salvation available. And I do believe that God makes provision for salvation. But then I also believe he works in us and draws us to himself so that we finally receive him and accept him into our lives. It, it, it's, you've got to believe. The Bible wouldn't say whoever believes can be saved if you don't believe. So you have to believe. And I think that this verse, this passage, is probably one of the best passages to solve that problem. What is it? Are we to work out our own salvation or does God work it out with us? The answer, both. We work out our own salvation and God works within us because if God wasn't working within us, I don't know that any of us would be able to faithfully do what we're supposed to do. We wouldn't have the power, the ability to be able to do it. And so the first thing that he says to them before he gets into them being light bearers for Christ is that they need to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. The second thing that he says comes to us in verse 14. And it's the second thing, do all things without complaining and disputing. One of the things we're going to learn as we continue on in the book of Philippians is that there's been some arguing in the church. There are a couple of gals he's going to call out by name. He's going to talk about some problems that they've been having. There have been regular disputes. Now, this is really important because I'm not sure if Christ were to show up at our church, that he would say the same thing to us. He's saying it to them because there's disputes and differences among them. 
And we've noticed twice already in our in-depth study of the book of Philippians that we've been told to do everything we can to be of one mind and to be in one accord. That means that they weren't. The church in Philippi, as great as the church was, had some disputes going on, had some problems taking place, and they were fighting. And if the church, number one, if we were just to take it, not even connected to Philippi, but if we were just to take complaining, if we are just complainers, we just complain, you know, we love God, serve Him, but man, is life hard and things are difficult and Jesus has me doing this and doing that. How many people are really going to respond when we share Christ? So do nothing with complaining, right? Um, do all things without complaining and disputing. But we see that this disputing becomes a major issue in their church. In fact, the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. We are to endeavor to be of one mind. And if there is a correction that happens, we need to be gentle. We need to be, as, as it says here, the servant of the Lord doesn't quarrel, but is gentle to all. When I had first returned back to the Lord, I had attended a, a four-square church. And it was a small church, and the gifts of the Spirit were operated there. And there was one gal, every worship service, who would speak in tongues. Every, and she did it in a weird voice. So it wasn't just speaking in tongues, but in a weird voice. So it was just kind of like, all of a sudden, there'd be a pause between songs, and then she would go. And people didn't bring people to visit. Because if they brought people to visit, they knew at some point during the service, this gal was going to speak in tongues. And then there was an interpretation. Now, there's a few problems with that. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 or 2, says, When we speak in tongues, our spirit speaks mysteries to God. Therefore, the interpretation of a tongue would be a worship or praise or someone speaking to God. But the interpretation at the church would be, thus says the Lord. And then they would give a prophecy. Now, I'm 19 years old at this point. I know this section of Scripture really well. And so we go to Denny's after the Wednesday night service. Just a bunch of us from the church would go to Denny's. So I'm there and the worship leader is there. And so right in front of everybody, I bring this up. You know, the church isn't operating in the gifts the way the Bible says to operate in them. And by you pausing and waiting, and so I, I bring it up and we start talking about it. And it turns into an argument. Now, I'm... I've got, the, the, I'm open up my Bible. I'm, I'm looking through it. Later on, I was not dating Lisa yet. And later on, she told me, you literally made me sick that night because of the way that you argued. It was such a bad scene that afterwards, an older guy came up to me in the parking lot. We're leaving. When an older guy from the church comes up, he was probably 40 at the time. <laughs> and uh, he says to me, you're right. You're right about tongues and the way they're supposed to operate within the church. You're right but you couldn't be more wrong. And he read me this verse. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. And it was, I can tell you, it was such a rebuke to me that my whole spirit, my whole demeanor was wrong. That even though I could defend my position wholeheartedly, can you imagine if somebody else was at that table, which I had hijacked for my purposes, probably to look good. 
I don't know what all my motives were at the time, but probably to look like, hey, look at me. I know what the Bible says. I know what the scriptures are saying here. And it was something that was very important for me to learn. When there are differences, we can talk about them. We can talk about what we might believe that is different than other people, but there's no reason to have to persuade them. I've even learned that from the pulpit. I don't spend the time here trying to persuade anyone to believe the way we believe, but to present what the Word of God says. And then you can search and choose and, and look into God's Word and see whether or not those things are true. So the second thing, the first thing was they needed to work out their salvation with fear and trembling to be able to shine the way God wants them to in the world. The second thing was to do, not to do any, do all things without complaining and disputing. So the third thing was that they would be blameless and harmless. This is in verse 15. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. Let's take these two things, blameless and harmless. First of all, they were to be blameless. This means they wouldn't have something going on in their life that somebody could come up and blame them for. That's what blameless is, right? You are blameless. Now, another, um, it's interesting, not that church, but a church I attended before the Foursquare Church that I was at was a holiness movement church. They taught that you could become sinless, that you could achieve perfection here on this earth. And again, I'm a fairly young Christian, and I remember trying hard to achieve blamelessness. And this is what's really funny, or, or, or perfection, without sin. And this is what's really funny about it. So I'm, I'm like, again, I'm, I'm 18 years old or so, 19 years old, right around there. And I'm hearing these messages on holiness and that God wants you holy. I even remember one message about climbing the cliffs of, I can't remember what they called it, but climbing the cliffs of something to get to the plateau of holiness. And once you get there, it becomes easy. That was the kind of the lure, the promise. Once you get there, it's, so I would do good for a couple of weeks. I would do good in the biggies for a couple of weeks. And then I would blow it. But here's when I look back, I'm quite sure. I'm quite sure that there was pride, there was arrogance, that there was gossip, that there were other things that I wasn't identifying as sin. So that when the person, and in one particular sermon, a guy said, I haven't sinned in 12 years. And when he said that, he was sinning because he was bearing false witness. And I'm persuaded he knew that he, was, that he had sinned. So when it says, be blameless, it means be right with God. It means, yeah, we want, we want a progression happening in our lives. We want to be getting more holy. We, we want God to be moving in our lives so that there are things that are being worked out of our lives. We don't want to be struggling with the same things five years from now that we're struggling with today. It may be something different, but we want that. But whatever happens today, you can call out upon the name of the Lord and you can find His grace. I had uh, begun to listen through the Bible to Chuck Smith by then. I would go to Hosanna Tape Library. There was one here in Tucson as well. And you could borrow three tapes, listen to them, bring it back and get three more tapes. And I listened to the entire Bible with Pastor Chuck. So I'm listening through it, him, and he talks about, starts talking about grace, the grace of God. And just the way he said it, it suddenly dawned on me that we live in God's grace, that, that we are just enveloped in his grace. And I, my thought was, the whole time I've been trying to climb these cliffs of insanity to get to holiness, there was a helicopter ride to the top. 
by simply saying, Lord, forgive me. Being genuine, but Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. And when we do that, God works sanctification in our lives. So we want to become blameless because we want things right between us and God at any particular moment. We want to make sure things are right. The second part is harmless. Be blameless and harmless. We don't want to do harm as a Christian. And you think, how can you, you know, as, as, a, as a believer, as a Christian, how can you harm people? Well, you can harm people through arrogance. You can harm people by not teaching the truth. You can harm people by seeking your own way and trying to lift yourself up instead of other people. So be without, um, be, become blameless and harmless. He says that we are to be blameless and harmless children of God without fault. So just having things right in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Now, when this book was written, Rome was at its peak. They had not been at war for a long time. And there was a lot of things going on in their culture that was bad. But I got to think about our culture today. Think about our world today. He called it a perverse, a crooked and perverse generation. And I think that we are living in a crooked and a perverse generation. I think that we have accelerated into the end of the world. I really do. I think that the, the, the things that the Bible says the last days are going to be like are what they are like today. There is a certain lawlessness now that we see by driving down the road. The people are driving down the road in a certain way because you're not going to get pulled over in our day. There's a lack of police officers around. There are as many, there, um, trying to make sure that my statistics are correct, um, murders, muggings, rapes are all at their highest in Tucson that they've ever been at any other time. That's Tucson. And it's not just Tucson. It's around the United States. And it's not just the United States. It's around the world. It's like there is a shift. There is something taking place and something happening. And I think it's towards a one world government. I think it's towards the rise of the Antichrist. I think it's towards the rise of the false, um, the false religion of the last days, which is called the harlot in Revelation chapter 17. I think that we are living in that kind of a world. And if they were to shine as lights in the midst of their perverse and crooked generation, we are to shine as lights in ours as well. So he says this, become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in this world. We are called to be lights who shine. Listen to a couple of verses. Acts 1.8 talks about the disciples waiting in Jerusalem. Here's what it says. Jesus tells them, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria until the ends of the earth. If we're going to shine effectively as lights as God wants us to do, then we need the Holy Spirit to empower us that we can be witnesses to the world around us. Because out of us, Jesus stood up on the day that they gave the drink offering in the temple and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And out of him will flow torrents of living water. And so the whole, and, and then it says, John tells us that he, thus he spoke of the Holy Spirit that would be given. Everywhere we go, when we are filled and empowered by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit flows out of us. And as we are shining as lights, God's doing his work. I'm persuaded that 
before we ever begin to share God's already doing work. We should look for opportunities to be able to share. Sometimes we think we're the ones that have to break the ice. I think that God already breaks the ice. And I think that God opens up doors for us to be able to do it. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And this is the, you are the light of the world passage. Uh, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing, but to be thrown and trampled underfoot by men. The only thing that salt that has been contaminated is good for is throwing on a road. You can't throw it, you can't use it, you can't throw it away in the manure pile because that's used for fertilizer and it will kill the things you put it on. If you want to salt an area where things don't grow, it would be the roads and that's why it's trampled underfoot. But then he says this, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but a lampstand, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In the midst of that perverse and crooked generation, they were to shine as lights. And in the midst of the generation that we are living in, which we could argue is just as crooked and perverse as the generation that they were in, we are to shine as lights in the world that we are living in as well. And so the fourth thing that he says to the Philippians that they should do is hold fast to the word of life. Look at verse 16. Shine his lights, he says, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So in order to be rooted and grounded, in order for them to be established so that Paul doesn't think he's ran in vain with the church of Philippi. He says to hold fast to the word of God. God's word is what he has given us that we might be able to discover what his will is for our lives, that we might be able to bring into our lives to find out what God wants, how God wants us to work. The Bible says that God's word works inside of us. It's able to get in and find out between the bone and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. It will not return back void. It, it keeps us from sin. And we are to hold fast to his word. I think there's a couple of ways that we should hold fast to it. I think, number one, we should be reading God's word. Maybe on a daily basis, at least regularly. And I want to be careful because I don't want to, I don't want to make this laborious for people. When I first became a Christian, this is in the 70s, the, the thought, and I don't know that anybody ever taught it, but at, maybe it was kind of like through discipleship that you had to read two chapters a day. I felt that if I read two chapters a day, I'd done what I needed to do with the Word of God. And so before I went to bed, I think, oh, I haven't read my Bible today. I'd get my Bible out and it'd be like as fast as I could possibly read it. And I don't know that I could have told you anything that I read once I was done. At some point, I became convicted in that and I changed it to the way that I do it now, which is I don't have any length that I have to read. I'm usually reading through a book and I read until God speaks to me. Sometimes it's a few verses and God has spoken to me and I'll kind of mark it. I put a little dash underneath it and then I pick it up from there the next time that I'm going to read it. Sometimes I'll read a couple of chapters, but the whole time I'm looking, I'm reading like I have a pencil in my hand. I don't always have a pencil in my hand. And sometimes now it's on my phone that I'm reading my Bible on. 
but I'm reading it like I do, waiting for God to say something with a sense of anticipation and expectation. We ought to take in the entire word of God. The second thing, and this is preaching to the choir, because you guys are here at a Bible study, right? And that is to study the Bible, to redeem the time. We live in a time where we can, we can look up anybody that we enjoy and we can go follow Bible studies from them. We can listen to the radio and have Bible studies. We can download apps and have Bible studies. We can go to church and have Bible studies. And that's good. I also think that we should study the Bible on what we are interested in. Find an area, a question that you might have or something that you're interested in and begin to look it up. Begin to study it on your own so that you're not going through a Bible study somebody else prepared, but you're studying something on your own. Just think about something you might be interested in. Um, I've been studying here recently, and I mentioned it just a little while ago. I've been studying the woman who rides the beast in Revelation chapter 17. Had a question come up a while back, and I realized I hadn't visited in a while, and I just have been diving in. Another thing that I've been thinking about is the blood of Christ. The, all the passages in the Bible that talk about the blood of Jesus, how that it's through the remission it's through the shedding of his blood that we have forgiveness of sins and life is in the blood. So that's just an area that I want to spend some of my own time interested, not connected to any Bible study, but just pouring into. And I believe that these are ways that we can hold fast onto God's word. Again, not laying some trip on people that, you know, you got to read your Bible every day kind of thing. Uh, but if we aren't reading it regularly, how are we going to hold fast to it? He says this, hold fast to the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. He knows that their life is going to be improved because they are taking God's word in it. They are hearers and doers of God's word. And he realized that he's going to rejoice in the day of Christ when he sees the depth of their walk. Then he says that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Again, he sees it essential for them in their growth and what they're going to do as a church that the word of God is held onto by them so that he knows he hasn't labored in vain. Then he says here at the end of it, yes, and if I've been poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul is in prison. It's the end of his life. He may be released and rearrested. We don't know. But he's in Rome and he's in prison and he's sacrificing his life for the sake of the gospel. And he knows that. And so he's encouraging them that they keep things right so that they can shine bright in the world so that his sacrifice will be a sacrifice that isn't a waste. His sacrifice of love and service and of faith. And it reminds me that you and I are called to be sacrifices as well. I want to read you a passage out of Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul again writes this. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So he's... Never met the Romans, but he's encouraging them that they present themselves as a living sacrifice, their bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, he says, which is your reasonable service. I love that he says it's just reasonable. 
You might think that if I give my body to be sacrificed, that is beyond reasonable. I'm really doing something. But he says, this is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. Again, the idea that we are in the world, but not of the world. I was thinking how God reaches out through humanity to reach humanity. I don't know that that's always the case, but certainly with the church it is. God moves in our lives. He does a work in us. We sacrifice ourselves. We live for Him. We shine His lights and we are human and He's reaching out to humans and He's using humanity to do that. I can think of a couple of cases when He doesn't do that. When angels come with a message and speak directly to people like to Daniel or to Mary or to Joseph, angels are not part of humanity. So they're interjecting into humanity. I think of God speaking from heaven, his voice to Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He did that twice, right? He did it when Jesus was baptized. He did it on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's not working through humanity to speak. Literally, the voice of God is speaking. But the word of God, which we trust in, which the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 6, excuse me, in Psalms 12, 6 and 7, is like, like gold purified by fire, and God will preserve it from generation to generation. He gave us this word through humanity. He gave it men of old, heard God from God, inspired by God, wrote it down with their own personalities in their own languages. He used humanity to reach out to mankind. And then he calls the church together to use humanity to reach out to humanity. That's the main way God works. There are exceptions to it for sure, but that's the main way God works. And if God works that way, then you become that perfect instrument. Because if God's using humans to reach humans, we're humans. And God can use us. That we would say, Lord, I want to serve you. I want to live for you in this world. And I do not want to be conformed to the world. Especially, I mean, always, right? But especially as we see the world becoming more and more ungodly, the last thing that we want to do is be conformed to this world. I was thinking of a couple of other things that are taking place in the world today. You've got Facebook changing their name to Metaverse. And it reminds me of the movie. I'm always bad at movies, titles. But is it Radio Player One? Is it? Ready? Real Player One. Ready, player one. Ready, not radio. <laughs> okay, ready. Thank you. We got, the, we got it all straightened out now. All right. But it's, 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 it's like that. Where is our world going? And if you think that Instagram is bad on teenage girls, wait until they're making their own avatars to be able to interact in the world with others. Where this world is going, we want to we stand out and be a contrast to what this world is doing for the sake of Christ because we need to because things are falling apart. So don't be confirmed to this world, it says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. When we give our lives as sacrifices, we're proving what God's will is for each one of our lives as being good and acceptable and perfect. And that's for those that see Christ in us as well. Now, I had said in the beginning of the study that this, this isn't a study where we just talk about everything we need to talk about in order to shine for Christ brightly. 
It's looking at what the Philippians were doing and what Paul wrote to them that they needed to do to be able to shine in their generation. But may God use us as lights in the midst of this world. May we present ourselves as living sacrifices like Paul did. And may God use us. May he open up doors. May he open up doors for us. And when he does, may we walk through those doors and allow him to use us. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we take time to look at this section in the book of Philippians. We thank you that we have been called to be lights in the midst of our world as they were called to be lights in the midst of their world. And just as their world was crooked and perverse, so our world is as well. And Lord, we pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, that we would be faithful as lights, that we wouldn't be, that we'd be of one mind, of one accord, that we would set our hearts and our minds on you, our God, and see you do the things that you want to do. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.